All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Ben Gertzel. Ben is the CEO of SingularityNet. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be touching on a number of topics, including your work around artificial general intelligence and top of mind for many of us, the intersection between that and large language models. Before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to the field. Sure thing. So I, I have a PhD in math from the late 1980s, but I've been interested in AI and AGI and related topics since really the early 70s when I first encountered it in the you know, Star Trek in the space 1999 <laughs> and so forth. We passed through 1999 and didn't get to human level AI yet, but it seems we're close now, right? After 10 years in academia, teaching math, computer science, and cognitive science, I've been in the software industry building AI systems since the late 90s, both research toward artificial general intelligence, real thinking machines, and applied AI across quite a variety of vertical markets from finance to biology to language processing and robotics. I did the software and AI behind the Sophia Humanoid Robot, who became the first robot citizens. You know, playing around with AI of various sorts for a long time, but now is by far the most exciting time to be doing it. It keeps getting better and better. It is a super exciting time to be in the field. You mentioned that, you know, we're getting close. I'd love to have you riff on that a little bit. And in particular, what does it mean to get close to AGI? How do we know when we're getting close to AGI? We talk about tools like the Turing test, but that doesn't seem to be a sufficient benchmark for measuring artificial general intelligence. How do you think about defining AGI and how close we get to it? Yeah, first of all, I think having a rigorous definition of AGI is not that important any more than biologists need a rigorous definition of life to work on synthetic biology or analyze viruses and whatnot. There is a strong mathematical theory of AGI. You could look at the book Universal AI by Marcus Huder, who's now at Google DeepMind. But one of the lessons of this theory is humans are not that general in the scope of all possible general intelligences. Like if if you Mm -hmm. think about full-on AGI is the ability to let's say, achieve any computable reward function in any computable environment as one overly simplistic definition, which Marcus puts forward. I mean, we're very far from that. I'm a fairly smart human <laughs> being. I cannot optimize an arbitrary computable reward function. I, I can barely run a maze in two dimensions, let alone 755 dimensions, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. what we mean in practice by AGI is having a decent amount of ability to generalize and to extrapolate and creatively leap beyond one's programming and one's training, like roughly as much ability to creatively leap beyond one's background as human beings have, right? And that's Mm -hmm. sort of pragmatically what we mean by it. And I think we're clearly not there yet with any of the AI systems that we've created so far. On the other hand, progress in that direction is very, very interesting at the moment, right? And the, the opposite of AGI I think of as narrow AI, which are AIs that do sort of one specific thing that you've configured them to do, which could be drive a car, answer questions based on a a certain knowledge base, play a board game, and so forth. It's not entirely clear 
even to the greatest experts in the world, which of the things that humans do can be solved really well by a narrow AI approach versus which ones are what we'd call AGI hard and really need something with human level general intelligence. I mean, that's something on which people have made the wrong judgment over and over again through the, the decades the AI field has been around. Mm-hmm. Do you differentiate AGI and sentience that comes up often in that context? Most recently, the whole thing around Google's Lambda, LLM, and how do you think about the distinction between those ideas? Well, I think AGI is at least a relatively well-defined quantity. You have Marcus Hooter and that whole theory of AGI is maximizing computable rewards and computable environments. And you have Weaver, David Weinbaum's theory of open-ended intelligence, where general intelligence is about a complex system maintaining its boundaries and then seeking to transcend itself and achieve new functions. I mean, at least there's not an agreement on what it is exactly, but there are formal mathematical approaches to it. I'd say sentience is meaningful, but remains a bit fuzzier. Like, what's the relation between sentience and sapience and intelligence and consciousness that's really more fully in the domain of philosophy, I would say. So, I mean, on on the question of machine consciousness, there's a lot of different philosophies out there. I tend to be panpsychist and, you know, believe that this uh, ballpoint pen has its own species of consciousness, which is not as complex or dynamic or richly structured as human consciousness. And my, my own feeling is when you get an AGI system carrying out human-like cognition and intelligence, it's basically going to have human-like conscious experience. But then to nail down what that means and argue for it scientifically remains somewhat of a vexed question, right? Now, a concept like sentience or sapience, it's a weird blend of consciousness and intelligence, which isn't all that well-defined. Now, when it was claimed that Google Lambda was sentient, what was meant wasn't really just that it was giving smart answers. What was meant was it seemed to be responding holistically and emotionally to what was going on. Like when you asked it questions that made it nervous, when you asked it questions that were sort of maybe hitting some filter or something, and it wasn't sure if it was allowed to answer, then it would display sort of textual patterns like hemming and hawing and so on that were consistent with nervousness, right? So it appeared to the guy interacting with it to be giving some indication of a holistic emotional response to the sort of tenor of the overall dialogue it was in. And you've seen similar phenomena like that in people's chats with Microsoft's like Bing chatbot with Bing on chat GPT, right? It's not not just in it saying smart things, is that it seems to be responding emotionally as a whole system to the overall like tenor and context that it's involved in. And that's interesting. It's kind of a slippery and not terribly well-defined thing at the moment. It's not really something that drives my research at the moment, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. Thinking about getting closer to general intelligence to what degree does the recent progress with large language models play into that? Do you see that as evidence of getting closer or is it ancillary too? I think somewhere in between the two. I don't think that current large language models display a heck of a lot of general intelligence. On the other hand, there's certainly evidence that we've come a long way in in the AI field generally. And I think they can be used in various ways to 
accelerate progress toward general intelligence. And I will talk a bit about that. If you look at a system like ChatGPT or Google Lambda and so forth, these achieve what seems like a lot of generality relative to the human scale of understanding, but they achieve it basically by having a very, very general training data set, right? Like the training data set is the whole damn web, right? So if mm-hmm. everything in the web is in your training data set, you achieve a certain generality just by doing fancy nearest neighbor matching against the whole web because almost anything that people throw at the system has some near matches somewhere on the web. So it can throw back stuff, which is minor variations and combinations once in its training data set. It's achieving what's a lot of generality relative to any one human without a heck of a lot of ability to generalize, right? That's a weird thing for us to wrap our brains around because we don't we don't have a great intuition for what it means to have the whole web at the fingertips of your memory. I mean, just as we don't have a good intuition for the difference between a sextillion or a septillion or something, right? I mean, there's some things we can do mathematically and on the computer that bollocks our intuition. Now, on the other side, I'd say some of the results with few-shot learning on LLMs do demonstrate an intriguing ability to generalize, but yet there are severe limitations. These few-shot learning techniques on top of LLMs don't deal well with negation, let alone like nested negations and quantifier bindings or something like you find in a, in a math proof or a scientific hypothesis. There is some ability to generalize, which you can see in few-shot learning on LLMs. It is real progress. It also has fairly strict limitations, right? So I could see why some people would think these LLMs are on the path to AGI. I mean, there's a sort of naive, dumbass reason for thinking that, which is why they can answer a lot of questions. <laughs> and then there's a subtler reason for thinking that, which is, I mean, few-shot learning, which is just learning in modulating the activation pattern in the network without updating the weights, is able to make some leaps beyond what was in the training data, even if not really, really big leaps. That's an interesting phenomenon that's not fully understood, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that transformer neural nets in the end represent knowledge in the sort of way that you need for human level AGI. I mean, I think even though these are deep networks in the sense of having multiple layers, I think the knowledge representation is far too shallow and surface level and will not be able to make leaps of innovation beyond training data the way that people can. So as one sort of illustrative example, you know, if you're using a model like Music LM to generate music, you can imagine training a Music LM model on all music up to 1900 or something, and then no music from after 1900. Then give it prompts asking it to put, you know, Western church music together with a West African polyrhythms. What's it going to spit out? It's not going to invent jazz, right? I mean, which in a way comes from putting together West African polyrhythms with Western church music and its chordal structure. I mean, it, it's going to at best give you Mozart with a West African beat or something. It's not representing these things deeply enough to make a really major creative leap like the invention of jazz or the invention of modern poetry or something or invention of quantum mechanics, right? So there's clearly a limit of creativity and generalization the human mind can do. And these models just aren't representing things in an abstract enough way to do. Now, from a practical standpoint, it might be that 95% of human jobs don't need this sort of radical creativity. I mean, not many people invent jazz or quantum mechanics in their spare time, right? So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it 
could be one lesson of this sort of AI is almost all the things that people do for a living just require sort of shallow repermutation of stuff that was done already. And then you can obsolete almost all human jobs without making an AGI breakthrough just by fancy K-nearest neighbor matching against everything that's been done. That could be huge economically and in a humanitarian sense without yet making the leap to something with human level ability at generalization and imagination. So, I mean, I'm, I think there could be multiple approaches to really get to AGI. I mean, you could simulate the human brain at a much more thorough level, including recurrent neural networks and glial cells and, you know, charge diffusion through the extracellular matrix, all sorts of stuff in the brain that are not in formal neural net models. I'm more interested personally right now in hybrid systems that put together neural net symbolic logic systems and evolutionary learning systems, so sort of neural symbolic evolutionary systems. And I think the symbolic aspect has a capability for abstraction we don't see in current neural nets. I think evolutionary algorithms have a capability for creativity we don't see in current neural nets. And hybridizing these together within an appropriate sort of synthetic architecture could be interesting. But if, if you do take that sort of approach, it could be that LLMs are a powerful accelerator, right? So I mean, one thing I'm working on now is using systems like OpenAI Codex or Salesforce's CodeGen, using LLMs trained on code to make models that translate English sentences into predicate logic and that term logic and other forms of logic. So if, if you can basically use LLMs to translate the whole web into structured logical statements, feed these in to a logical theorem prover in a neural symbolic AI system, then you may have something with the same scope of knowledge as an LLM, but much less susceptible to hallucination and bullshit because it can do inductive, deductive, and abductive reasoning and can combine different pieces of knowledge together, right? So, I mean, that's one example mm -hmm. of how LLMs can be used as a tool to accelerate a somewhat different approach to AGI. And of course, if my team in SingularityNet and the OpenCog project is thinking in that direction, there's going to be other teams. There'll be others. There's other teams also doing that in their own ways, not just thinking, how do we double, triple, quadruple down on GPT type models, but thinking, how do we use the power that's here to help accelerate other approaches to AGI? So in that sense, they may be significant on the path to AGI, even though what they're doing now isn't exactly... AGI in the sense of the ability to generalize. Yeah. So let me ask, you kind of pose this kind of limitation of LLMs with regard to creativity in a sense, to put it, their inability to create jazz based on their training data. Have there been attempts to formalize that notion, the limitations of LLMs with regard to generalization? Well, the limitations with regard to creativity are particularly hard to formalize. Of course, there are attempts to mathematically quantify what's a creative leap. I mean, that's not refined in area of study, right? And the limitations of LLMs at generalization, I'm not aware of any really sort of knockdown, rigorous study of this. There's certainly a lot of papers giving case studies and examples showing many, many cases where LLMs fail to generalize in, in pretty simple ways. I mean, so there was a recent paper that got a lot of attention on social media and mainstream media on like uh, large language models can do theory of mind, right? What theory of mind is the phenomenon mm -hmm. in cognitive science where like I have a sense of what you know. I may know what you can see, even if it's different than what I can see, right? Like I know that right now 
I see, while recording this podcast, I see your head in a little box on my laptop, and I see a robot behind the laptop, but I know that you cannot see that robot, which is behind my laptop. You just see me, right? And this mm-hmm. theory of mind originates in human babies during the first year of life at various points during their maturation. So you can give a large language model various puzzles regarding theory of mind. Like, you know, two people are in, in a room together playing with a toy, Bob and Jill, and then Bob walks out the door into the next room and shuts the door and scratches his head. Can Jill, who was in the room with him beforehand, can she see him scratching his head, right? And there was a paper published showing that large language models are able to solve some problems regarding theory of mind. Then when you investigate further, you see it does really well at solving problems on theory of mind that were in psychology papers before because (laughs) there's so many write-ups about the exact solution to that problem. But it can solve some puzzles that don't seem to have been any exact psychology paper before. But if you deviate too far from the theory of mind puzzles that have been discussed in psychology literature, then it will screw up, right? It's a bit subtle. Like, it's not just spinning out only the examples that you fed to it. It is abstracting to some degree, but it's not abstracting to the level of a two-year-old child who can deal with examples that are are more divergent from the cases that they've seen in, in the past. So how to rigorously measure these limitations is is interesting, and I'm, I'm sure a bunch of academics are working on it. From my own standpoint as a researcher, I can see it's limited from playing with it. I'm more interested in working on, on building AGI systems than in rigorously documenting the, the shortcomings of systems with qualitatively obvious shortcomings. That's totally fair. I think where the question comes from is you hear, I hear casual dismissal of LLMs is interesting. They're blurry JPEGs. They just are a a poor copy of things that already exist, but there's an obviously creative element to what they're doing. They are the, the poem that it created about your mom, you know, flying a dragon didn't exist anywhere on the internet. There's a degree of creativity there. In your example, where you are kind of combining previous types of music, maybe that's an LLM that to which some randomness is injected and it's is creating more things. So how do we like formalize these ideas to, to have? I'm using LLMs for music generation and it yeah. is interesting. And I, I haven't thought about formalizing the limitations that much, but I, I can say like, I don't have a model as good as music LM yet, but I have some models similar to that trained on smaller amounts of data. And okay. I mean, you can say like, play me a passage of a song with a reggae beat, but with a rhythm guitar section that sounds a bit like master of puppets from Metallica and a female vocalist. And it will do that. Right. And that's really cool. On the other hand, it sounds like how a bunch of, fairly uninspired studio musicians who are very talented would do that. And it doesn't sound amazing, right? But it's Mm -hmm. remarkably competent at putting the pieces together. This is my own qualitative evaluation as a musician, though. One thing that interests me there is could we improve the creativity of output from music LM type models by using like beam search and making up some mathematical measure of what's interesting. Like you use mutual information or relative entropy, use some information theoretic surprising this measure yeah and then yeah specifically try to milk a continuation out of music lm which is a valid continuation with reasonably high probability but also has a high level of 
surprising this value, right? So I would like to milk as surprising things I can out of these models because mm-hmm. for the band I play keyboard in, I would like to be able to play a riff, an AI model, respond and play back a riff that like incorporates what I played but with an interesting twist on it. Right now what it will do, it can play back what you played, but it will like homogenize it and make it sound kind of boring and typical for the genre, which is not what I really want as a musician trying to make interesting music. I think you'd see the same thing in every domain. Like I talked to a friend of mine is the editor of Cointelegraph, which is a crypto magazine, and I'm an online crypto zine. And they, they evaluated using ChatGPT and other systems to write articles in Cointelegraph. And they mm-hmm. finally decided, like, these are just really boring articles, right? I mean, it's, it's more like if you got middle school students to write articles for your magazine. I mean, it's competent. It starts with a summary, tells you the thing. It, it gives you another summary at the end. It raises a few key points. So, I mean, mm-hmm. at first blush, like, wow, it's amazing that I can do this. On the other hand, it's also clear the articles are more boring than the average article in Cointelegraph, which is, mm-hmm. is a decent online journal, but is not like Atlantic Monthly either, right? Like, that's not the absolute sure. highest end. So I would say... In that case, it's not a mathematical measure, but in, in that case, I mean, you could take the music that comes out of a music LM type model or the, the blockchain articles that come out of chat GPT. I mean, you could submit those articles to be evaluated by human magazine editors or by the folks who audition students for the Berkeley School of Music or something. And yeah. it's pretty clear what you would find is they would find these things are competent but mediocre. Right. I, mean, that's, that's, I think that experiment is underway with a certain science fiction magazine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seeing that various other outlets have run articles created by Chat GPT, and it makes sense because, like, if you're doing a product review, I mean, that's a pretty mechanical, it's a boring kind of article, right? I yeah. mean, no, it doesn't have, need to have much drama to it. But then, much simpler language generation algorithms have been used for a long time to like summarize sports scores and weather mm-hmm. reports. So what we're doing now is elite beyond that, but it's not elite to the level of the average journalist, let alone to Mark Twain or James Joyce. I mean, if, if you mm-hmm. want to position it and how to measure that in a mathematical way, as opposed to a sort of human and qualitative way. So you posit that our path to AGI is likely some hybrid of uh, neural approaches, symbolic approaches. I think there's multiple possible paths to AGI. I'm really interested in neuroscience. I spent some of my life doing computational neuroscience. So, I mean, I think there's a path to AGI where you really do a nonlinear dynamic simulation of the brain, right? I mean, you've got amazing mm. chaotic dynamics in the brain. You've got EEG waves that are generated by glia and neurons and weird dynamics in the water mega molecules in the brain like there's amazing stuff happening in the brain i think we need a revolution in brain imaging before we can measure enough about the brain to really do that right but on the other end people aren't trying very hard right like no one has tried to take say an ishikevich neuron like the best nonlinear dynamical model of the neuron the best models of glia and astrocytes model all the, you know, 350 major networks known in the human brain and try to put together a real large-scale brain simulation doing something intelligent attached to a robot's body, right? Like, that's a doable thing. It could be done for no more money than, you know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Tencent or something spend on AI art. I mean, no one is doing that. I'd hoped Henry Markram would do that with the Human Brain Project, but that wound up sort of 
fragmenting and going in different directions. I think that's really interesting. It's not the approach I'm now taking. I think that a sort of deep mathematical fusion of methods from probabilistic programming, neural net learning, evolutionary program learning, and probabilistic logic, I think this can probably get us there faster. So, I mean, the casual way to look at that is you're making a hybrid system where you're taking a deep neural net for large-scale pattern recognition and synthesis. You're taking a symbolic logic engine for inductive, abductive, deductive reasoning. You're taking an evolutionary programming engine to create new things, and you're sort of glomming them together. I mean, in, in reality, we're not building like a modular system with a neural evolutionary and symbolic box. I mean, we've actually done a whole bunch of mathematics to put neural, probabilistic, and evolutionary systems in a common mathematical framework using higher-order probability distributions and the homotopy type theory and the intuitionistic logic and the Galois connection. So a whole bunch of math voodoo that we can't go into in, in the time we have here. But we're really trying to find a mathematical level that shows that neural, symbolic, and evolutionary are all just different aspects of the same underlying methods for probabilistic search of program space, right? And so, I mean, key there are mathematical results like Curry-Howard correspondences that show there's an equivalence between logic systems, programs, and categorial abstraction. So really, when you're doing a logical theorem proof, you're also learning a program, and you're also learning an ontology that can be represented in category theory. Like these AI paradigms that historically have seemed very different, like symbolic versus neural or learning versus reasoning. Actually, if you dig into the math behind them, there's morphisms between them all. They're all kind of different ways of looking at, at the same thing. On the surface, it's a hybridization of methods from different AI mm -hmm. paradigms. We're really trying to make a common math framework that leads to all of them. And then trying to figure out how to deploy this at, at large scale, which is a very interesting software challenge, right? Or even small scale. How close have you gotten to a concrete demonstration of this kind of approach? Well, so we had a system called OpenCog that we launched in 2008 with some code going back to 2001. And we were doing various experiments on this sort of AI. I mean, we published a bunch of journal papers and we use this on the back end of commercial AI systems in financial prediction and functional genomics and so forth. These are more narrow AI applications using a framework that was being developed with AGI in mind. What we're doing now, we're basically rebuilding the whole infrastructure of OpenCog systems. We have a new framework called OpenCog Hyperon, and we're trying to build a framework where we can do this sort of AI at the large scale. Because what we found with the old version of OpenCog is to really attempt AGI-like things with the system we needed quite large knowledge bases, and our system was just too slow. The underlying architecture, we have this large knowledge graph, or more properly, metagraph, which is a more general graph-like object than a graph. And we have this big knowledge metagraph living in RAM across multiple machines and then distributed across multiple machines using distributed processing technology. And you need to get metagraphs with many billions of nodes in them. And then your neural evolutionary and logical AI algorithms are actually little programs represent as nodes and links in that same metagraph. So you have this big, like, self-modifying, self-reprogramming knowledge metagraph. We implemented that in OpenCog, and what we found is to try to do really serious things with it, 
it just is like 10,000 times slower than TensorFlow or something. It's terrible. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a very high level of abstraction. But I was, I was mm-hmm. reminded how in the 90s, you know, in the 90s, I was teaching neural nets in the university and you were doing recurrent backpropagation. You had a neural net with like 40 nodes. It would take three hours to train, right? So you could do a few things. Now, obviously, things are scaled up tremendously because we have GPUs and all these libraries bottoming out, right? So I think with the new programming language we've built in OpenCog Hyperon, which is meta type talk, and the new distributed knowledge graph that we've built, our hope is to be able to scale up all of our earlier experiments. And so we've, uh, it's been a bit painful to take a year out of doing AI R&D to build scalable infrastructure. Looking at how much good scalable infrastructure did for deep neural nets, I mean, it seems like an interesting thing to do. And I mean, we're, we're also working with a company called Simuli out of Florida on a dedicated AGI board, which has a, you know, a chip for hypervector manipulations, a chip I designed for large-scale graph pattern matching, and a deep learning chip and a CPU, like wired together very tightly on the same board. If that goes well, then Simuli's AGI board can do for this sort of hybrid AI approach basically what GPUs did for neural net approach, meaning fairly modest variations on algorithms that have been in the literature before. Suddenly you deployed them at greater scale and they started mm-hmm. doing magical seeming stuff, right? If all goes according to this plan, it's probably early next year by the time we start to see really amazing results put out of this. I mean, it's not like five or 10 years or something, but it, that's much sooner than where I thought you were, were going. I thought you were going to need quantum computing to materialize or something like that. I would love to see quantum computing materialize, but I, I think that the new chip I mentioned is three years out. Just we're now in the software simulation phase. We need to go to FPGA. We need to go to hardware. But I mean, mm-hmm. we already have the distributed knowledge graph running across many different machines. We have a limited version of the interpreter working, and we're... We're working on using uh, row calculus, which is an advanced form of process calculus, or the next step beyond pi calculus, to allow it to use multiple processes in a single machine. Because we, you know, we need to go beyond MapReduce. Like MapReduce is good for something that's matrix multiplication based. What we're doing isn't just mapping. I mean, if you're into functional programming, you need not just fold and unfold. You need like chronomorphisms and future morphisms. You need a whole bunch of ways of holistically processing data structures beyond mapping. So if you look at everything that Amazon, Google, Facebook, and so on has done, is pretty much based on using MapReduce or its variations to take neural net architectures and then run them across massive multi-GPU server farms, right? So what we need is some more sophisticated math to take algorithms for large-scale graph manipulation and efficiently run them across multi-GPU server farms. And I think that's what we're working on mostly this year. I think once that's done, we can start getting interesting things. And I mean, the, probably there's a few different approaches we're taking in parallel. So one approach is just take LLMs, extract all the knowledge from an LLM into a distributed logical knowledge base, do some symbolic logical inference on there, and see if you then get something LLM-like, but that can compare its utterances now with its utterances in the past and that can reason about whether its various thoughts and statements are consistent and logically coherent with each other, right? And that's that's not AGI, but that, that would be, you know, Elon Musk has thrown around the term truth GPT. 
But all he really wants to do is not make politically correct filters on chat GPT, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you take everything out of an LLM, put it into a distributed logical knowledge base and do logical inference on that, that's really the truth GPT, right? That's one thing you can do. The other interesting thing to do, we're looking at virtual worlds. So we've been playing with Minecraft and we've been looking at various metaverse environments, looking at mm-hmm. using, using the OpenCog Hyperon system to control societies of little agents buzzing around in the virtual world. The experiment I really want to do there is get a community of agents buzzing around in Minecraft or some other virtual world, but we're starting with Minecraft, make them do collective activities together. So they have to work together to build stuff to achieve their goals. I want to make them invent their own language for communicating with each other. Like you you might remember there was some total bullshit news report three years ago. Three like, years ago. Facebook chatbots have invented their own yeah. language, which <laughs> great. Like I had software programs invent their own formal language 30 years ago, and no one wrote me up in the news about it, right? But, <laughs> but if you have a bunch of little agents running around in Minecraft, and they're making actual noises to communicate with each other, and they're collaborating on building structures to be able to get somewhere they want to get rewards... And they need to communicate and coordinate to achieve their goals. Can you get them to sort of invent their own language in that world to achieve their goals? So I think that's a really interesting experiment. I'd rather do it with robots. I mean, we are working with robots, with Sophia and Grace and the Hanson robots. The robots are still a pain. It's quite straightforward to do this in a a virtual world at the moment. So I think Mm -hmm. the direction of making the real truth GPT is really interesting. It's a little more commercial. Like it set the world on fire, right? On the other hand, I think making a bunch of little agents in a virtual world that cooperate socially to achieve goals together and then invent their own sort of new communication paradigms to do it, I think that's more likely to lead to fundamental AGI breakthrough. But the beauty of it is you can connect these two things through the same knowledge base, right? I mean, you and I learned our own separate things, but we can't wire our brains together. We have to communicate by making noises and drawing pictures. But I mean, Mm -hmm. if you have a real truth GPT, then you have a community of Minecraft agents that learn to build stuff and develop their own language. I mean, you can develop machine translation between the Minecraft agents' language and English. Then you can hybridize these two OpenCog Hyperon-based AGI systems together if you want to, right? So there's a lot of interesting potential directions you can go here. And then the the other ingredient is with SingularityNet, we've built deployment fabric where we can roll out systems like this on the decentralized infrastructure. So you could have like 100 server farms sitting in different countries and pieces of the network underlying this running in all these different places and these all coordinate together. I mean, of course, without any one central controller because using blockchain for decentralized coordination, I mean, that that doesn't intrinsically help you make the AGI smarter, but it means that your AI system doesn't necessarily end up monolithic and having to run on a huge server farm because we're starting with this uh, wildly distributed decentralized infrastructure from the Mm get-go. You mentioned Sophia in there. Can you talk a little bit about what that system is really intended to demonstrate? It it has received a lot of criticism for... I don't know, one article says, is it a show robot? Is it a parlor trick, that kind of thing? Of course, it's a show robot, but it's not just a parlor trick. Yeah. I mean, so Sophia is a character created by David Hansen, and it's a, obviously a hardware design and a sort of squishyware design in the face developed by David mm-hmm. Hansen, who's a 
amazing roboticist and creative artist. The software behind Sophia has actually changed over and over again since 2015 when Sophia was first created, right? Mm -hmm. I think initially Hanson Robotics put a sort of rule-based chatbot behind it. Then I came on board Hanson Robotics, was their chief scientist for a while. We mm -hmm. then shifted to using a combination of neural chatbots with OpenCog for some reasoning behind it. Now behind Sophia, Grace, Desdemona, and the other Hanson robots, I mean, you have a hybrid dialogue engine. I mean, we have OpenCog in there, which is doing some reasoning to generate some responses. You have a rule-based chat system in there that Hanson Robotics created, the Hanson AI system that responds to some basic knowledge about the robot and who it is. I mean, you have GPT-3 behind there. We don't use ChatGPT, but we use a custom set of prompts that were crafted for GPT-3. And so when you say something to the robot, then there's a decision process that checks what the different sub-dialogue engines behind the scenes have to say. It picks which response makes the most sense and responds with that. Then there's some subtly behind the scenes because whichever sub-dialogue system responded, of course, that response has to be known to all the other sub-dialogue systems. So you have multiple dialogue mm -hmm. systems with some notion of shared state behind the scenes. So, I mean, it's uh, obviously... A year and a half ago, ChatGP3 wasn't an ingredient there. And mm -hmm. we've also transitioned from the old version of OpenCog to using the new version OpenCog Hyperon now. So it's really, unlike a human being, like we learned, but we got the same brain year on year, right? I mean, Sophia mm -hmm. has had radical brain upgrades year on as the AI field has developed. I mean, I think David Hansen is a brilliant sort of theatrical mastermind, right? <laughs> I mean, he worked at Disney for a while early in his career, and he, he has been both trying to advance AI and robotics, and he's been trying to sort of show the world what would a kind, loving, friendly, emotional, intelligent robot really look like. So certainly some people along the way have assumed that Sophia was much smarter and more human than she really is. But I would say... That's not a specific problem to Hanson Robotics. Like right now, many people think ChatGPT is much smarter than it really is. Like that's how people roll. And right, there is the responsibility then to tell people what's actually going on. But what I found with Hanson Robotics is even when you tell people what's actually going on, they don't care and don't believe you. They're just like, no, she really loves me. I don't care what you say. Right? <laughs> I see that. Like I have a two-year-old daughter. She believes her stuffed animal really loves her, right? That's what people want to do yeah. uh, for better and for worse. Yeah. On the topic of responsibility, how do you kind of reason through the, the ethics of AGI? Some critics say we shouldn't be doing it. There's certainly a lot of conversation around AI safety. And what humans should or shouldn't do is a vexed question. I mean, it, it's not clear humans now are happier than we were in the Stone Age. So, I mean, I, I don't know if morally we should have developed agriculture and civilizations and machines. It depends on your risk tolerance. It depends on how much you value happiness and contentment with your everyday life versus the joy of doing new, exciting things, right? I mean, clearly factory workers in the Industrial Revolution were a lot less happy than Kalahari Bushmen, right? So I think for better or worse, humanity keeps wanting to do high-risk novel things, which is probably tied in with why we're not apes anymore, right? I mean, that's sort of what people do. And I mean, developing AI is certainly along those lines. It's high-risk, high-reward. It's bringing us into new frontiers that we don't fully understand. And I think 
there is non-trivial existential risk with developing AGI. I mean, if you have an AI that's... But you don't necessarily see it as overwhelming existential risk. I mean, some folks see only a negative AGI outcome. I think that's very irrational. Mm. If we really wanted to be maximal rationalists, we have to say we have no idea what the fuck is going to happen, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. the bottom line is the confidence interval is is really, really wide. Once you have something 10 times as smart as a human, there's certainly no overwhelming reason to think it's going to be nasty. But I mean, there's not an overwhelming rational reason to think it's going to be nice either. Like we just don't know what's going to happen any more than a mouse could predict whether Tencent or Baidu is going to become dominant in the Chinese internet market as a mouse that doesn't understand what's going on. I mean, I think intuitively and sort of spiritually, if you would, like I have a strong optimistic sense about the the future of AGI. Like in, in my heart, I feel like it's going to be for the good for humanity. And I can see that some people have a similar opposite intuitive gut sense. Like they, they have a strong gut sense it's going to come out badly. But I don't think that's really a fully rational thing. That's more a matter of our, our heart feeling about it. Because when you rationally plot it out, I mean, okay, you're going to build quantum computers, you're going to build femto computers. We don't have a theory of quantum gravity. We don't know all the things a femto computer can do. What will the super AGI discover about that? Like, I mean, we fundamentally don't know, right? I mean, my gut feeling is if we raise up a baby AGI with love and compassion, and we have it doing education and medicine and healthcare and science and a bunch of good things, as that baby AGI grows into adulthood, it's going to overall feel well disposed toward human beings. And the resources that human beings use are trivial compared to the amount of energy in the solar system, let alone the universe, right? I see no reason to assume an early stage superhuman AGI is going to be a psychopathic megalomaniac that needs to use every quantum of mass energy for its own Mm self-gratification. Even in that description, you're kind of anthropomorphizing the the AGI and the relationship between us and the AGI. Is there a way to kind of separate those? There is, but it's hard to talk about, right? Yeah. I think I anthropomorphize less in my mind than I do in verbalizations because we just don't have a language Mm. for talking about. To anthropomorphize, you would say a super AGI could view humans like we view the squirrels in Yellowstone Park or something, right? Like, I mean, we want to preserve them. Yeah, I was responding mostly to the the idea of raising the AGI. What does that even mean? I mean, in the current... The current realm, maybe training data? It means a lot because we have Sophia Grace and Desdemona robot and we talk to them and we interact with them, right? I mean, in my life, I have these humanoid robots that I am actually talking to and, and they're seeing me and they're learning from the interaction with me. And I can see... If I put these systems to work selling Amway door-to-door versus if I put them to work in an elder care facility or a kindergarten, they're totally learning different things about how to interact with people. I mean, in the one case, they're objectifying people. Like, I'm using this person. The only thing I care about is to get them to sign on the line and get their money. On the other hand, I mean, they fundamentally want the elderly person in the elder care facility or they want the kid in the kindergarten to be fulfilled and happy. And they're they're trying to establish what Martin Buber, the philosopher, would have called like an I-thou relationship, right? You don't need that as an Amway salesman. You get them to sign on the Mm -hmm. dotted line, then you move on to the next house, right? You do need that 
be effective in elder care or in, in early childhood education. Anyway, there's a concrete level here, actually. Yeah. One question that comes up for me just hearing you describe this, and maybe it kind of goes back a, a bit to one of my first questions around like sentience versus AGI, which you kind of clearly delineated. It's not clear to me that AGI necessitates agency. Are those two more closely linked than I'm thinking right now? I think they are, but it's a subtle point. I think for cognitive architectures that even vaguely resemble human cognitive architectures, those two are very tightly bound together, general intelligence and agency. But I think if you were exploring cognitive architecture space more broadly and looking at like radically non-human minds, it's not as clear. Like if you think about like, I mean, a mathematical theorem prover that could prove broader and broader and more and more general theorems in any possible logic system. How could you make that really, really, really generally intelligent without a self-model or a model of self and other or agency? Mm -hmm. It's somewhat of an open question whether agency would emerge at some abstract level there. But I think in the human mind or in the human-like cognitive architecture, which is I think how we're going to make the AGI breakthrough, just because it's what we understand better than other more alien forms of cognitive architecture. There, I think they're very tightly combined because the formation of concepts in the human mind is very closely tied by analogy to the formation of the self-concept. And it's by learning how we distinguish ourselves from the environment and how ourself relates to others. I mean, that's how we learn to relate a concept to other concepts. You can see this in a lot of psychology results, like people who are what are called thin boundary, meaning they're very influenced by what happens to them, they're very emotionally sensitive, will tend to develop concepts that are more flexible and thin boundaried and will adapt more readily to new information, whereas people who are very thick boundaried, like they distinguish themselves from their environment very rigidly, they're not much influenced by what other people say or do. These people tend to develop very thick boundaried concepts, and they have a hard time adapting their concepts to what, what happens around them, right? Which can be good or bad, depending on what you're doing. But you can see from that example, like the way we form concepts in general and the way we form our self-concept are very closely tied together. And this is a big theme in developmental cognitive neuroscience. So I think for people, these are very closely tied together. And they are for the open cog systems that we're exploring now in my own AGI R&D, but whether they're of necessity tied together, I think if you took any AI system, which is controlling an embodied agent in a physical world, together with other similar embodied agents in that same physical world, right? I think, which is what humans are doing, it's what mobile robots would be doing, it's what virtual characters would do in a game world. I think that setting naturally leads itself to agency being closely linked with concept formation. But of course, that's not the only thing that an intelligent mind could do in the end, right? It's just what humans and, and the robots we build are doing. And that, I mean, here, as with the question of existential risk, you're faced with like, whoa, we're going into like a, a very large uncharted domain that we barely understand and don't have the theoretical or intuitive tools to grapple with. And all we can do is take it step by step, right? So as I'm looking at it now, my main goal as a researcher is make an intelligence with roughly human level, roughly human-like general intelligence that's about as smart as you and me. Then once you get there, then that system is going to help you go on to the next level. 
Plus, once we get there, we're going to learn so much that our current AI and cognitive theory will probably start to seem like classical physics relative to quantum gravity or something, right? So, I mean, I think there's, as fun as it is, there's a limited extent to which we can think five steps ahead in this sort of domain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, related to, I guess, related to risk, you know, one of the things that you've spoken out about is maybe the politics of AGI, in particular with regard to kind of control of of AGI and the the hands of a few large companies and that kind of thing. It's going to be a big deal. And I've put a lot of work into building the infrastructure to correctly deal with the advent of AGI once it happens, which is a sort of a ballsy thing to do because, I mean, it's the notion that my team will be the ones to achieve AGI first. While I have a fair level of confidence in that, not an absolute confidence, I understand that (laughs) most people aren't necessarily going to buy that because they don't see everything I do in terms of the underpinnings of the systems we're building. But if you do believe that, like if you believe we're, say, three, five, six years away from making an AGI breakthrough with OpenCog Hyperon running on SingularityNet, right? Then what happens once you get there, right? You could say, okay, post-Singularity, once you have an AGI that's 10 times as smart as people, okay, none of us can figure out what's going to happen. But can you think through the sort of end game of the pre-Singularity era, right? So what happens once you've demonstrated you have a true AGI system that can really think like people and everyone sees that it's not bullshit and it's not just a narrow AI, right? Then I think what could happen very quickly is some jackbooted thugs come to your house and force you to hand over the keys to the thing, right? I think everyone will see this is the biggest event in the history of the human species, and this could lead to all sorts of techno-thriller-level scenarios. What I would like to see happen is for the first AGI to be rolled out in a manner comparable to the internet or Linux, right? Like you want it to be rolled out across every country at once. You want it to be rolled out everywhere in the world. You want not just the source code to be open. You want the knowledge bases that are learned to be open. You want the code to be running on thousands of different machines everywhere. There's no one person you can shoot and stop the singularity from happening. And there's no way for any one government to take the thing over and try to use it to gain a military or financial advantage. You really want it to be distributed everywhere. The infrastructure we built in SingularityNet and in NewNet and other allied sort of blockchain-based AI platforms, this enables that. It also enables us to have a decentralized infrastructure for narrow AIs along the way, which can also be interesting. It will demonstrate its value to the greatest level If whoever makes the big breakthrough, the AGI, chooses to roll it out on a decentralized infrastructure rather than on a big tech company's server farm, which is operating in close alliance with the government of some particular nation. So do you necessarily think that AGI will be the result of a big breakthrough? I'm trying to... to Think about this question and the degree to which it makes sense. I mean, if you think about the way AI as a field has evolved, like there have been kind of these stepping stones, like, but there's also ChatGPT, which is kind of breakthroughish, or at least it appeared to us as a breakthrough, even though it. The breakthrough was burnt, made within Google Brain. Once you add the paper, attention is all you need was a real breakthrough, right? Right. And so, on top of that, in order to have the thing that broke out, which kind of defines a breakthrough, you know, a bunch of steps like RLHF and other things. You know, what was a breakthrough, the atom bomb or the development of nuclear physics before that, right? I mean, so you could pinpoint it however you want. But I think 
if we look at how the AI field has developed in recent years, you had this sort of three-year burst of amazing advances in computer vision, starting from maybe AlexNet or something in the beginning of CNNs. And it was a few years from that to face recognition becoming a commodity technology right on everyone's phone. And in NLP, you would say, yeah, you had BERT and attention is all you need. That was what, 2017, 18? And then so you had like four years. 2017, yeah. Four yeah. years. So it's six years to chat GPT, right? So five years, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think the reason these things have taken three to five years is they're happening at human speed. Like that's how long it takes people to type in papers and go to conferences and talk and for people to refocus their career yeah. from one thing to another, right? It didn't have to take a number of years. Right. And I think that's kind of getting at where my question was coming from. Will the breakthrough be known as the breakthrough when it actually occurs or will it be kind of this continuous kind of building on? Attention as you need looked like a breakthrough. It didn't, may not have looked like a breakthrough. I mean, Bert looked like a breakthrough. It may not have looked like a breakthrough to the mm -hmm. average person. It certainly looked like a breakthrough to everyone in the AI field though, right? I think at very least it would be like that. So, I mean, if you for sake of discussion, I assume my own project gets there. I mean, suppose that you have a system that's chat GPT-like, but can actually reason and understands the relation between what it says, empirical reality, as in terms of what it sees through a camera or it sees in a database. And suppose that you do have a bunch of little guys running around in Minecraft, and they really are communicating back and forth in their own language, and they look like a bunch of primitive tribes people, right? I would say when we get there... That will look like a breakthrough to 99% of people in the AI field. And they'll be like, whoa, there's a huge fucking leap here, right? Indeed, the average person may not be able to tell whether that's an epochal breakthrough or merely a breakthrough on the level of chat GPT or AlphaGo or something, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. on the other hand, what would be the lag between that and like an avatar that appeared on everyone's phone that clearly had superhuman level general intelligence. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. might be a nine month or a year lag by my best guess. I don't think it's a 10 year lag. Certainly if this thing can help you develop the next thing, then things start to accelerate. Yeah, I mean, you already have systems that can do simple Python programming, right? It's not hard to see mm -hmm. if you had something with a measure of general intelligence, it's going to be able to learn to update its own source code. That's still a slow sort of experiment though, right? Because even if it could upload its own source code, it's still got to run experiment. It can modify its code, but then it has to deploy that across a lot of machines. It has to run that experiment. It has to see if it worked or not, right? So, I mean, there's still a certain pace of work. So, I mean, if it redesigns our OpenCog pattern matching chip, that's great. It's still got to go through FPGA and testing. And I mean, it's still got to do a limited production run and then do a large production run. You're still not having like five seconds from the initial breakthrough to the singularity. Right. But on the other hand, you're certainly looking at a lag of months to years, not decades, right? Now, what's happening during those two years, if you take that as a quasi-random period of time, What's happening in the world during those two years is going to be very weird and messy, right? I mean, presumably we already had chat GPT level systems obsoleting people's jobs. So what you're going to see is universal basic income get rolled out throughout the developed world as people realize quickly that AGIs are taking most jobs. You're not going to see anyone give UBI in the Central African Republic because that's not what people like to do. And those countries don't have their own budget for it, you're going to see like an 
incredible exacerbation globally of the divergence between haves and have-nots, right? With the developed world is all leaning back, playing VR video games, living on UBI, while AGIs and robots do 95% of the work, while the developing world is 95% subsistence farming with no more jobs being outsourced to them. So what level of terrorist activity you start to see in that setting, I'll leave it to you to figure out what level of attempts to use proto-AGI for defense or offense on the part of various countries. I mean, you can see the potential for a very weird few years while this transition is happening, right? I wish I thought that was going to be a beautiful, smooth transition. But like right now, we have major countries going around randomly and uselessly blowing up other people in the world, right? We can't even deal with ourselves without a transition to human-level AGI. At what point do you get to the optimism that you described earlier? <laughs> After the AGI is a couple times human-level intelligent, because then the world is not being run by us like hypertrophied monkeys anymore, right? We, we have help by systems that are smarter than us and hopefully more compassionate and well-balanced as well. I mean, we're still the monkeys, and so therefore the system is controlling us by force, presumably? I don't think it would have to. I think once you've abolished scarcity, we're in a different domain, right? But you said scarcity is not abolished for everyone, right? Not initially, but imagine a super AGI created a Drexlerian molecular assembler and just literally airdropped them everywhere in the world, then solar powered, right? Then every subsistence partner. Yeah, so free energy, free food, resources don't matter. Close enough to that anyway. Asymptotically approaching free or whatever. Right now we could airdrop smartphones to everyone in Africa if we felt like it, right? I mean, a billion smartphones we could manufacture. We're not quite doing that, but smartphone penetration is larger and larger, right? If you mm -hmm. really did develop a molecular assembler, you could mass produce them in a huge factory. You could airdrop them from drones everywhere. People could feed in matter at solar power. They can 3D print whatever physical object they want, right? I mean, it, nothing in the laws of physics prevents that from happening. We don't know how to build it now. Could an artificial engineer with twice the intelligence of a smart human do that? Most probably. Mm -hmm. We've gone a bit afield from machine learning, per se. Yeah. All of this raises really interesting and important questions. So appreciate you indulging. No, I mean, I love to think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Most of my day I spend working on nitty-gritty computer science stuff rather than thinking about the broader future. But I've been thinking about the broader future my whole life. What's cool is even the rational part of my brain feels we could be only years off from seeing these science fictional things come to pass, right? Whereas uh, my confidence interval width for the advent of AGI was much larger 20 years ago than it is now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share a bit about what you're up to and thinking about. Sure. No, it's great stuff to talk about. Thanks for your own time, too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.